Acts 21, starting at verse 15. After these days, we got ready and went up from Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Mason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of, of those who have believed? They are zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to the customs. What then shall be done? What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourselves along with them and pay their, their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing what they have been, that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourselves will live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from the sexual immorality. Then Paul, Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they would pre had previously seen Trophimus and Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him to the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all of Israel was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when he saw the tribune, and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of people following, crying out, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who was, 
who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? And Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus of Cilicia, a, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he, he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. This is the word of the Lord. It's football season. And if you watch football at all or hear any of the football descriptions, uh, maybe you are familiar of the term armchair quarterback. Has anybody ever heard of that term armchair quarterback? An armchair quarterback is, is this person who sits in his comfortable lazy boy recliner on the day of football, maybe still in his boxers, probably in a t-shirt with his favorite sports team on it, and he sits in there eating his, his, his chips, you know, greasy potato chips, and he's drinking his favorite beverage, whatever it may be, and he's watching the quarterback on, on the TV as a herd of 300 pound men come rushing towards the quarterback, and the quarterback in the midst of fear, seeing this wall of huge, monstrous men come at him, throw a desperate long shot at one of the receivers down, down the field. And as the ball is going by, the ball gets intercepted. And the armchair quarterback immediately shakes his head, shakes his fist, raises his voice and said, he should have never thrown that in the first place. Can he not see that there was another re receiver open on the other side? He should have never thrown to him. Some of you have been in those situations where all of a sudden a spouse or a relative or a neighbor all of a sudden flips out over a football game, reprimanding from your lazy boy something he or she has no control over. And it's easy to sit in your comfortable chair and give advice to the guy who's on the field facing these 300 pound giants. But it's all to a whole different matter to be the guy on the field who has to make split second decisions under incredible pressure and out of fear of your life. It's an easy situation in those situations to make mistakes. So we need to be careful about judging someone who has made a mistake in the midst of such pressure. And this morning, I don't want to play armchair quarterback on the Apostle Paul here. It's easy to second guess what he did and yet I believe that the Apostle Paul made a serious mistake in the story that's before us. Luke recorded it for our instruction. He recorded it for our encouragement. And we can all be instructed if we learn how prone we all are when we're under pressure. And therefore to be on guard. We can be encouraged because even the most godly men, like the Apostle Paul, makes mistakes, and yet God uses all these things together for his good, uses them mightily, and perhaps 
there is even hope for us in 2013. And we need to remember that God is not thwarted or slowed down by our mistakes. So this, I'm going to unpack it this morning. And Paul is going to be put underneath the microscope. And for some people, that is a threat that we even look potentially critically at the Apostle Paul who has written the vast majority of the New Testament and to say that the Apostle Paul made a mistake. The first thing we need to remember, Paul is human. He's not above error. So let's kind of put that in there. So here's our theme. When a godly man errs, or godly woman heirs, godly person heirs, God will work it together for good according to his loving purpose. When a godly person heirs, God will, will work all things together. We all, if, we're, if we can be honest for a second, we all err. We all make mistakes in our lives, right? Every single one of us, including the Apostle Paul, for us, as we talked last week about discerning God's will, we know that it is very possible to even err in discerning God's will because at best, it is an imperfect and attentive process for us all. We all, and I can speak from my own experience, I have made plenty of errors in ministry. I've misjudged people. I've misjudged situations. I've been pulled back. I've been tentative. I've been scared. I've made mistakes in ministry. We err in our marriages, in our relationships. Those of us who are married can look back and say, man, I wish I had said this or I wish I had done this in my marriage years ago. Because if I had done this years ago, we wouldn't be in this current problem today. We err in how we raise our children. We, we have to raise our children at the time when we have absolutely no experience in raising children, right? And by the time we, we have the experience that we need, the kids are out of the nest. We have finally have the wisdom that we need to raise children and they're, what, gone. And every parent can look back and lament if I had only done things differently. We've all made financial errors. Just absolutely dumb, stupid mistakes in our financial decisions that we've made. And we've made major decisions in our lives that have turned out to be major mistakes. And our text offers us at least three lessons this morning. For those who are seeking the Lord, and the first one is this, even the most godly men err. The most godly. Paul and this delegation had, had come from the world of the Gentiles. And they came from the world of Gentiles bearing a gift from the Gentile churches to Jerusalem to help this poor and struggling church. Paul had a huge heart that, that they may be one. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, 
slave or free, male or female. They're, they're one in Christ. And Paul's hope was by bringing this gift from the Gentiles, they would be able to reconcile and see that Christ is doing something absolutely wonderful. So Paul, bringing this gift to, for the poor, brings it to James. And that day they meet with James and the elders of the church. And James was the half-brother of Jesus. So, you know, there's a little bit of clout with James. And he was the lead person there. And he is obviously the main leader in this church in Jerusalem. The other apostles must have been out on some missionary endeavor because there's no mention of any other apostles. And Luke himself was there at this meeting as he mentions they were given a warm, hearty welcome. Paul proceeds to share with the Jerusalem church all that had been accomplished through his ministry. This past, this past week, Todd and I had the opportunity to meet with John Camiola. And just listening to John Camiola and the stories of what is going on in Joss, Nigeria, it encouraged our heart. And we, we kind of walked back going, oh my gosh, how can we better support them? How God is really up to something where there are women being rescued in Europe who are Nigerian from the sex trade. And they are contacting John and Missy in Joss, Nigeria, and saying, can we provide a way to get these girls back to Nigeria and give them to you? God is at work. They, they need to go to a bigger building because of what God is up to. And they're still crammed. Women and children sleeping on floors, spare beds, God is up to it. And Paul is recounting the similar kind of things to the church, just saying, listen, God is up to something big. You need to be excited about this. And their response shocked me when I initially read this. The first thing that they did was they glorified God. And that's what they should be doing, right? Praise God. That is Let's give all glory to God for what is being accomplished in these Gentile lands and people coming to Christ and people becoming whole again in Jesus Christ. But in the next breath, what did they do? They tell Paul about the thousands of Jews who believed and were what? Zealous for the law. These people had been told that Paul had been teaching Jews who lived among the Gentiles to forsake everything that Moses had taught him and not to walk according to Jewish customs. And so what did they do? They proposed a scheme. They proposed a scheme, which obviously it, it looks like was concocted beforehand. And in my opinion, it was just pure political posturing at best. It was to avoid a backlash from a Jewish faction of the church on account of the leaders for welcoming Paul and the Gentile converts and accepting their gift. So what did they do? They proposed that Paul join these four men that so happened to be taking a Nazarite vow. He joined them in taking these vows and also in making a sacrifice. then it will look like to everyone that Paul himself is keeping the law. It seems that James and these elders 
We're not concerned over the fact that these believing Jews were still zealous for the law. Zealous for the law. Not only that, but these leaders themselves were probably been uncomfortable with Paul's view that these Jewish Christians are free from the ceremonial aspects of the law. If you, if you ever read through Leviticus, a good Jewish person would be zealous for what is found in Leviticus. All these ceremonials, all these ceremonies and requirements, these people were zealous for it. And the Christian leaders in the Jerusalem church were probably, honestly, very uncomfortable with what Paul was doing. Because what did they do in, in 21-25? They, they, they were citing the Jerusalem decrees, showing that they were, after all these years, still kind of hung up on the details of what believing Gentiles should do and what they should not do in these matters. Their focus should have been on Christ, who according to Romans 10-4, was the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ was the end of the law for righteousness. But rather than seeing Paul's opportunity as an oppor visit as an opportunity to teach these Jews about the great, these great truths and to clarify any misconceptions that Paul, about Paul's teaching, they were nervous about what these thousands of Jews might think. So they kind of created a spin, hoping that they would see Paul in a different light. And what does Paul do? He submits to it. And as I'm reading through my commentaries, and I've, I've got to admit that this is kind of why I'm uncomfortable, um, there are many commentators who defend Paul's actions. And as I'm reading through these commentators defending Paul's actions, my heart becomes even more burdened because these are very learned men who have been Christians and scholars longer than I. Maybe it's just his, the aura of the Apostle Paul that is just far too great to even suggest that he may have blew it. I don't know. And I, I, as I said earlier, it's easy to play armchair quarterback by taking pot shots at a man who's, who's out there on the field and under a tremendous amount of pressure. And I don't want to do that. I don't want us to do that. But even so, I believe that Paul has made a major mistake. I believe it is quite arguable that Paul's actions compromised or at very least confused some crucial biblical truths. Why should believers in Jesus Christ, whose blood has cleansed us from all sin, the blood of Christ has cleansed us from all sin, why should we as believers go through rituals of purification involving animal sacrifice under a priestly system that crucified Christ? As the author of Hebrew argues, Christ is the sum of everything that the Jewish sacrificial system pointed to. Why go back to an old system when the veil of this very temple that Christ was in was ripped in two? 
It's one thing for Paul to set aside his freedom in Christ and to adopt some neutral Jewish customs that might be a hindrance to the gospel. It's one thing to do that when they're neutral and really do not cause confusion or distortion to the gospel message. But to participate in a Jewish sacrifice where there is shedding of blood symbolizing the purification of sin was at the very least causing confusion on what Paul had plainly been teaching elsewhere. That the decrees of the laws were removed by being nailed to the cross. Now, if you look closely at the text, it's quite clear that there's no mention, no indication in the text that Paul erred or sinned, right? There's no, Luke didn't come out and say, and the wrath of God was upon the apostle Paul, or Paul sinned here, or Paul made a mistake. And later, even Paul himself says that he maintained a clear conscience of what he did. But in light of all of Paul's epistles, verse 20 should just jar any sensitive reader of Scripture. That they were zealous for the law. Zealous for the law. Paul taught that the law was our tutor or our guardian that to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The purpose of this guardian, guardian or tutor is done away with. In Galatians 3, so then, the law was our guardian until Christ came. In order that we might be justified by faith, not justified by the keeping of the law. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. He taught that Christ is the end or the fulfillment of the law for righteousness to all who believe. He exhorted the, the Galatians for freedom. Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Don't submit to it. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. How could the sum of all of Paul's teaching about not being under the law, how can that be harmonized with a favorable view of being zealous for the ceremonial law? How? It doesn't make sense. So I'm thoroughly convinced here that, that Paul's motives were pure in this whole ordeal. Pure motives. But we've got to remember that even sincerity and pure motives do not protect us from major mistakes. Additionally, we know that sometimes we act in obedience and we suffer terribly. But sometimes we disobey God and life seems to go well for a while. It's kind of this strange thing that happens. But the prophecies about Paul's imprisonment say nothing about whether or not his actions led to imprisonment were right or wrong. James Boyce, someone that I, I resonated with in this whole thing, said this, the greatest proof that Paul was wrong was that God, who is sovereign over the details of our lives, intervened 
before Paul was able to offer the sacrifice in the temple and prevented him from doing it. I also see a parallel in, in the life of David when he was, he's a godly man, a, God, a man after God's own heart, right? We, we talk about how David is a man after God's own heart even though he's the one who slept with Bathsheba and killed uh, Bathsheba's husband in, a, in order to protect him. But there's another story, a man after God's own heart, a man who errs, right? We elevate him quite highly. After years of being hounded by, by King Saul, David said at one point in 1 Samuel, I will perish one day at the hand of Saul. And as a result of this thinking, which the text does not condemn, but which is clearly sinful unbelief in the promises of God, of, for David to sit on the throne, David went over to the Philistines, the enemies of Israel. This wrongful alliance involved him in deception, in murder. It culminated in him going in battle, into battle with the Philistines and against the army of God under Saul and David's beloved friend Jonathan's leadership. And in God's grace, in God's grace, God intervened and spared David from this terrible result. But clearly, David's wrong thinking and subsequent wrong behavior had led him to the brink of what could have been disastrous compromise. Even though the text never says that he had done wrongly. I think that while Paul was not sinning or being overtly rebellious here, he was making a serious mistake and if God would let him go through with the offering, if God would allow him to go all the way through with sacrificing with blood, it would have compromised the gospel. So how should Paul have, how should Paul addressed this issue? Like any brave man or any brave woman, he should have said to James and the elders, brothers, I think it's time for us to have a long discussion. He should have, should have found out exactly what they meant by their statement they were being zealous for the law. He, he should have used this as an opportunity to educate the Jerusalem leaders that Christ, that in Christ, we are not under the law, but we are under grace. And he should have warned them about the dangers they were falling into of having racist views of Jews and Gentiles. They should have been educating. He should have been educating the Jewish believers that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile. They should have been pointing them toward taking the gospel to every tribe, every nation, every tongue that God is no longer a respecter of race. That is what Paul should have been doing. Why didn't Paul confront these leaders? Why did he just quietly go with their scheme or their spin? Well, I think there's two reasons, and both of them are, are good motives. First of all, Paul ardently desired that there be unity between the Jewish and Gentile Christians. He desired unity. 
he taught in Ephesians 2 that the dividing wall between them had been broken down in Christ. Broken down. Paul's strong desire for unity in the church pushed him over the line in accepting this compromising scheme rather than confronting the truth of the gospel and what was at stake. Second reason that Paul went along with the scheme is because of his deep burden for the conversion of Jews. He wanted to have his brothers and sisters who were Jewish to be saved. But in his effort not to offend the Jews and to become a Jew, to reach the Jews, I believe that he created a tremendous amount of confusion over the main issue of the gospel. And that is this, the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice for our sins. That is sufficient. Instead, he tiptoed around the issue. And hear me say, it is never ever right to maintain peace and unity at the expense of compromising or confusing the truth of the gospel. Never. And it is never right to leave out the offensive aspects of the gospel for the sake of winning those who would be offended. Let me give you an example. King Jehoshaphat Anybody got any historical background on King Jehoshaphat? I didn't think so. He was a godly leader of Judah who sincerely wanted to bring about an alliance with a separated northern kingdom. And so he, to bring about this, this noble aim, what did he do? He made an alliance with the king of the northern kingdom. And the king of the northern kingdom at that time was King Ahab. Does anybody know who King Ahab's wife is? Jezebel. Yeah, if you don't know the story, you know about Jezebel, though, don't you? And so to bring about this alliance out of a good mo motive of bringing about unity between the two kingdoms again, what did he do? King Jehoshaphat offered that his son be married to the daughter of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Athaliah was her name, and what did she later do in this marriage? She usurped the throne and almost succeeded in slaughtering the entire Davidic line of kings. It's an example of unity at the expense of holiness, and it has disastrous consequences. And in our day dangerous ground that I'm stepping on, we, we are urged to set apart our differences and to come together with Roman Catholics to, on matters where we agree. To demonstrate our unity in Christ. But to do so will either result in compromising or seriously confusing the major truth about the gospel. While unity is important, it must be based on the central truths of the gospel or it is not true biblical unity. Regarding the second offense of leaving out or tiptoeing around offensive elements of the gospel in order to win Christ, this kind of error results in people coming into the church who are not truly saved. 
I think there are, are reasons to question about whether or not these Jews who had believed and were zealous for the law were truly saved. Were they converted? At best, they were very immature believers who desperately needed some straightforward teaching. If they had heard Paul preach as he does in the book of Galatians, It would have separated the genuine believers from the false. In our day, in our attempt to reach Muslims, there are groups of people, even within reform circles, that will tell Muslims that we both worship the same God. And, but when we are silent about the deity and the lordship of Jesus Christ, we may succeed in getting them to accept Christ. But if we, they cannot accept Christ, if they, if they can accept Christ and they can still hang on to their Islamic beliefs, they have not believed the gospel. They've believed another gospel. They've synchronized their faith with the Christian faith. Or if in witnessing to a Roman Catholic man or woman we don't make plain the difference between works righteousness and the righteousness that is imputed or infused upon us through faith in Jesus Christ alone. If we don't say that there is a huge difference between working out your faith and doing these activities and doing these things, that will make you right before God versus we already have a righteousness from God that has been given to us. If we don't do that, we have not presented the gospel clearly. And any decision that comes out of that is an unclear witness, and it is suspect at best. So the first major, and that was the biggest one, the first major lesson is that even the most godly men err. So we must be on guard against making serious mistakes, especially when we're under pressure. Second one, the errors we make carry negative consequences. The scheme did not produce the intended results, to say the least. And when we do err and when we make mistakes, even if we have the most sincere and good motives, there will be negative consequences, either immediately or later. Paul's error in going along with this scheme resulted in the Jewish leaders and the church at large missing a vital lesson about law and grace. They missed the badly needed correction about their views of the Gentiles. And instead of rather clearing up this matter, it only created more confusion and misunderstanding. And Paul himself got beat up by a crowd of zealous Jews. He got beat up and he got nearly killed. And he spent almost the rest of his life in confinement because of this mistake. And seeing Paul going into the temple through these Jewish rituals did not soften the hearts of Jewish believers toward the gospel, unbelievers toward the gospel. It just did not produce that. In fact, they became even more 
angry that Paul was in the temple. So we should never just shrug off mistakes as if they don't matter. Oh, well, God's sovereign over all things. Oh, well, I guess I made a mistake. They do matter. Mistakes do matter. And inevitably, we and others get hurt by our errors. And there are consequences to our mistakes. So if there's a tremendous amount of pressure in your life to make a decision right now, you might need to say, let's pull back. Let's pull back. The fear of pressure of making a decision right now often will lead me to making a poor decision, even though my motives may be good and the reasons seem clear. Maybe I need to sit back and seek wise counsel and ask for God's wisdom. Because there are negative consequences that do happen. Thirdly, lastly, God is able to make our errors work together for good according to his loving purposes. Even though Paul erred, God graciously spared his life and gave him, as we'll see next week, gave him the opportunity to preach to the mob that had just attacked him. Now, is that a reason to make mistakes? No. You don't make mistakes so that grace may abound. But God graciously preserved Paul, spared his life, and God gave Paul an opportunity to preach to the angry mob. And as, as a result of Paul's imprisonment, he was able to present the gospel to governors and rulers with whom he would never had any such contact. Never. He was a simple Jewish man who happened to be a Roman citizen. There was no way that he could have met with governors and rulers and this leader and that leader. In fact, he, he eventually, because of this whole thing, and according to God's purposes, he got an all-expense-paid trip to where? Rome. All-expense trip paid to Rome. And what was he able to do in Rome? He was able to witness to many in Caesar's household. He also was given a tremendous amount of time to write his prison epistles, which are in our New Testament today because of his time. And all of these things, all these results illustrate the abundant grace of our God who works all these things, these, these mistakes and errors, works all those things together for the good of those who love him and who are called to his purpose. So, we need to remember that we all make mistakes. Maybe we can see it throughout history. You got in 1899, the director of the U.S. Patent Office said this, everything that, ha that can be invented has been invented. 1899, he did not foresee the iPhone. 
At about the same time, Lord Kelvin, the president of the Royal Society, said, heavier than air flying machines are absolutely impossible. 1905, President uh, Grover Cleveland said, sensible and responsible women do not want to vote. Grover was wrong. 1921, the great baseball Tris Speaker said, Babe Ruth made a big mistake when he gave up pitching. And the Nobel Peace Prize winner in 1923 stated, there is no likelihood that man can ever tap the power of an atom. And D.L. Moody said this, if you don't go to work for the Lord because you're afraid of making mistakes, you will probably make the greatest mistake of your life, that of doing nothing. And he's right. We should get out of the armchair and get into the game of life. If we're scared to death of making mistakes and we're paralyzed and traumatized about the potential of making mistakes, we are making the world's biggest mistake with our life by not doing a thing and understanding the sovereignty of God that he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called to his purpose. Get out! The point of this message is not to play an armchair quarterback on the Apostle Paul, but to get us to all play armchair quarterbacks on ourselves. We all should be constantly examining our lives to identify our sins and our mistakes, including the mistakes of not serving the Lord. And when the Lord graciously opens our eyes to the errors that we have made, we should learn from them. And if possible, try to correct them and ask for forgiveness from those whom we have wronged. We should submit humbly to the trials that may be in our lives as a consequence of the mistakes and sins that have been committed. We submit to those trials. For we have made a mistake. Paul, what did he do? He submitted to the mistakes that he did and went all the way to Rome. Trusting in God that he will work all these things together. And we too. If there are trials and mistakes that we are going through because of the sins that we have, we have gone through, we submit to God. And the consequences but trusting in the same time that God will work all these things together. But we should not despair. We should not despair that we have the human potential to thwart and screw up God's plan with our simple lives. It's silly. But without minimizing or excusing our mistakes, we should realize that in His grace, God works around and through our mistakes for His glory. And we should trust Him. Move on in obedience to His will for our lives. And then, 
we should marvel that God uses bumbling, idiotic, sinful, mistake-making sinners like me and like you for His glory. Amen? Let's pray.